Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And on today's episode, we'll be discussing the opening night movie of the Melbourne Women in Film Festival, Shelley Barrett's 1996 film Love Serenade. We'll also share an interview with festival director Sian Mitchell and open the Cultural Capital Film Diary. But first, we'll take a look at Sebastian Lelio's A Fantastic Woman. Sebastian Lelio's A Fantastic Woman arrives in cinemas having recently been nominated for Best Foreign Language Picture at the Oscars. Daniela Vega stars as Marina, who works as a waitress and singer. Daniela is a trans woman and in a relationship with the much older cisgender man Orlando. The film's opening shows how comfortable the two are with each other. He lovingly watches her sing at a restaurant. She's in the process of moving into his apartment. Things change one night when Orlando abruptly suffers an aneurysm and passes away. Marina is suddenly thrust into the lives of Orlando's family, including his ex-wife. Their barely concealed hatred of her morphs into outright hostility, and Marina is subjected to their transphobia, while also having to deal with the fact that the life she created with Orlando has suddenly evaporated. Lelio's camera tracks Marina's movements through all manners of Santiago streets, and I found this interest in the city to be a key aspect of the film, both running in tandem to and also directly influencing the main storyline. In an at times excruciatingly matter-of-fact manner, Lelio also captures the transphobic abuse Marina suffers, from the institutional to the verbal and physical. Daniela Vega's performance anchors the film as she appears in almost every scene and unleashes her, really, I thought, quite powerhouse singing talents a few times in this movie. Eloise, did you find this to be a fantastic film? I like this film and I think I did review it back uh, when we did the Biff episodes, so my memory is a little hazy. I haven't seen it since then. Um, and I think I've actually gotten a bit um, less in favour of this film over time that I've that I've had to think about it. So, I mean, Daniela Vega is amazing. She gives a brilliant performance um, and, you know, is in every scene. She's so important to this film and I feel like this could be a better film if it was different, but I can't imagine it without her in it. You know, I mean, she's the key part and, you know, so much of the commentary about this film is about her performance. I really kind of like the attention that the camera paid to her and also the freedom it gave her to express her own feelings. And I believe that, you know, some of the characters of Marina was created uh, with a few maybe biographical elements of Vega. And so having that attention paid to her and her experience and struggling was what was really key in this film. But there were a few things maybe a little bit later that we can touch on that Mm. didn't quite work for me. Um, But Andy, what do you think? Maybe I will arrive at where you are, but right now I'm really, really positive about this. I thought it was remarkable. It was interesting what you're saying about how she's in almost every frame because at the beginning the film kind of pivots about four or five minutes in, where we thought where we, there is no she, she's not even in the film for the first few minutes, and we're like following Orlando around, and you're like, oh, what's going on here? And then you, know, you start, then it, there's a, it drops a few clues which you think is how the film's going to go because it opens with this mm. gorgeous shot of the um, Igarzu Falls, and. And then it cuts these billowing mist, then you get the mist of the sauna and this sort of stuff. And so, yeah, it's a lot about geography and landscape. And, and that was one of my favourite things was the way that it, then as soon as you're introduced to Marina, it's just all about 
her experiences, which is, and, and that was really beautifully done. But it just was very artful. There's a lot of Almodovar, I think, in the use of the colour, especially mm. toward the beginning. There's these big, bold lights. He's looking for a white envelope. You know, it's all the, this stuff's going on. And one of the, my favourite things also was the cafe in which Marina mm. works. It's called La Diana, and we ran an actual um, article about it in the paper, in the Saturday paper last year, written by Melbourne Festival director Jonathan Holloway. Right. And he visited it and he described it like this. Um, it was built in 2016 by a local artist out of window frames and plants with rope bridges and metal spiral staircase held together by twine, cable ties and the hopes and dreams of risk assessors. And I thought that was like <laughs> the perfect thing because it's like in a way Marina is a construction of Santiago very, very much plugged into the, the side it shows to tourists and the side it shows to people who want to have fun and then the other side of it, which we see a few times as well. And so, yeah, I just thought was, that was a really good point and a really nice use of location. I, um, yeah. I heard uh, Jason DeRosso on the Hub on Screen, his new radio show on ABC. He described the film as a noir or as, mm. you know, kind of made in the shadow of the noir genre. And at first I, I disagreed quite strongly and I thought, mm, I, I, you know, I couldn't remember much about it that had, that had brought that up. And, you know, there are kind of thriller elements to it. But as he, his review went on and he spoke to Lelio, the director, kind of got on board with it a bit like yeah. it's a really interesting film it's it's about death and a little bit about i mean there's a little bit of investigation going on obsession um you know a everyday scaling of a city that's bright but darkened by its damaged inhabitants like that's kind of you know seeping up from it um occasional moments of music musical maybe and violence yeah. as well and in a lot of noirs you'll see that interjection of the occasional um thrilling moments at or abrupt changes in the mood. Yeah. Anyway, so in that sense, I did kind of think perhaps it is. But, you know, in its really interesting approach to the city of Santiago. Yeah, definitely. It is, and, yeah, it is. Yeah, as you said, she's very much a creature of Santiago and you see all these different interactions with the city from the quite glitzy sort of apartment that she's just moved into, Orlando's apartment, beautiful city view. Well, all the apartments you have city views to, you know. Later we see her um, move in with her sister and that's a different apartment than, you know, the gay bars, um, corporate uh, end of town, that sort of stunning scene at the end where she goes for a jog uh, in that beautiful park with the whole city sort mm. of below her but the way it's shot, it's, it's as if the city is um, like a back background painting really. Um, so... That was something that I wasn't really expecting. That's what I took a lot out of it. Mm. Um, I agree with you, Eloise, in that Daniela Vega is exceptionally good and I think she she is the key to the film's success. She carries the film. She never overplays anything. Uh, her singing is incredible too. We see we get a couple of moments where she sings and she's got this sort of quiet determination about her performance which sort of echoes, I think, his filmmaking style. There are some beautiful shots, but they're sort of presented in this l almost low-key kind of way. He sort of makes a big deal out of these moments, the director, but in this sort of sub almost subdued sense, I guess, and I, to me that mirrored um, her performance as well. I heard in the this um, Jason DeRosso interview with Lelio that he brought on Vega initially as the film's <clears throat> cultural consultant, I think, and then she became so involved with the film and that when he was building the Marina character, he called on Daniela Vega's qualities in some sense and some mm. of her life, like being an opera singer. By the time that he got to casting, he just realised that Daniela Vega needed to play Marina. Mm. Um, I had a question. Do you think that uh, this film is a, a celebration 
in a way of a transgender woman? Or do you think it's more interesting calling out transphobia and playing like a more of a social role? That's an interesting question. I, I do, I think it started off as being a celebration and I feel like I would prefer it to have skewed more towards that as the film went on. I remember saying this back at MIFF, but I did have a problem with the way the film... I, I mean, I really appreciated, and it was very powerful in the way that it just showed these really tiny, really insidious moments of bigotry and transphobia that made Marina's everyday life just really difficult, and it was and made her experience, I don't know, just seem really, really difficult. And then when it got a little bit later, and things started to get a little bit more sensationalist, and the trauma that that was applied to her more overt it kind of lost its power and I think in doing that it maybe lost some of its uniqueness Mm. as a film I read a review by uh, Willow McClay a film writer I think she's Canadian and she likens she kind of spoke in this way that that I had been thinking she likens the film's failures to that of a bad horror film monster movie kind of thing she said if you constantly show your audience the monster the monster isn't scary anymore and I think that's it like there's a moment later in the film that's really explicit and kind of a I don't know you know not unnecessary but for this particular film I don't think it fits and I think that's what Willow McClay is referring to but it just made it less powerful as a film to kind of go there it could be more powerful if there was less of that, but perhaps it was necessary to balance out these elements of fantasy and Marina's imagination that, that occur a bit later and that we do see. Yeah, I would agree. I, I don't think I've seen some um, commentary, uh, some uh, you know, an almost scathing review I saw um, on uh, Letterbox where someone said it's it's as if. She's put through all of this trauma for our catharsis so we can all pat ourselves on the back to saying, oh, we've witnessed transphobia and we're better than yeah, that. Yeah. And, you know, we've watched this movie and we're not as bad as those people. Um, yeah, yeah we, we will never be yeah, abusive we'll, in we'll that never way. we be those abusive, mm. exactly. But whereas I think the much more insidious examples which are in the film, the film's full of this stuff, um, I, f- I found that very confronting, particularly when thinking about, you know, my own interactions with people in, you know, and my position of privilege. I think you can't not think about it, that kind of stuff whilst watching the film. So, yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to agree with 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 that, but I did... I, it just has this very oddly subdued tone towards the end of the film that I... I yeah, I don't really... I haven't really reconciled that, I guess. But on the other hand, I quite liked how beguiling it was in the sense that it was in that tone for most of it. So I'm, yeah, I d- I'm confused, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't reconciled that. What are your thoughts, Andy? Well, I really like the humanitarian um, take. I mean, that seemed to be the main motivator that I, that I could, so far as I could tell, was just this endless suffrage of small, like, insidious, you know, tr- mm. actions of transphobia and ne- never giving an inch, this jaw, like, just staying cl- closed, the mouth, you know, not, not, not talking that much at all. There's a few moments... Where the, where Marian does open up and express how how she's feeling, but mainly it seemed there was there's one moment where she says, "Isn't it a human right to farewell a loved one when they die?" or something mm. very similar to mm. that, and that's almost the only time she kind of pushes anybody to actually account for what they're saying. The rest of the time, it's more like, "Okay, I'm not going to try and change anything. I'm just going to endure." But what I really really liked was the way that it was about a film about grieving without being about grief in a way. 
because there was so mm. much stuff that Marina had to deal with just to get through the day. Exactly. But there was never a moment where, you know, she breaks down. At the, oh, though she, yeah, toward the beginning there was one moment. But it's never really about, look how horrible my life is and look at all I have to go through. I have to move house. I don't have my dog. I... That's really, I guess the film's suggesting maybe that the fight, this, this scene where she's singing uh, towards the end of the film is maybe a star. Well, I took that to mean the, be a, an attempt at this sort of moment of catharsis. Um, and I'm not sure how successfully it won that scene, although it's a beautiful scene, I think, on its own. Um, yeah. yeah. Two, two scenes in this I think are the best thing I've seen so far this year. One with the, in a sauna toward the end and then the very, very final scene which I wasn't really sure because there were moments we haven't really mentioned them. There's moments of fantasy, happening, yes. this magical yeah, realism. Yeah, um, uh, that dancing the, sequence. Yeah, the and they're usually musically, the, the musically involved. Because yeah. as a musician, I'm like, hang on, we haven't seen any of the scenes of this rehearsal. Mm. What's going on here? Why can she just walk into a stage and sing in front of an audience? So I'm imagining that may well be fantasy, but also it's obviously part of um, Vega's incredible arsenal of talents. So really interesting, like, pushing of generic boundaries, you know, that expectation. And there was nothing prior to that in the film that because the first musical scene where she's singing is, like, just that we walk into with Orlando. Orlando. Yeah. yeah, so we're watching a performance and we know it's a performance, whereas later on it shocks us that it's something that is just spontaneous. And so we don't have that, like, classical musical expectation of expecting the spontaneity, yeah. I suppose. And yeah. so that's really interesting and something that, that Lelio does quite well in this film, you know, in terms of tone, in terms of using his settings and his set pieces for that. Yeah, and it's interesting, the actual, like, literal performances, because there's so much about skin, about perception, about, you know, how people can deal with or can't deal with Marina. Um, there's, a, there's a scene where we're maybe going to get to see her genitals, but then there's a mirror. And there's lots of uses of mirrors and surfaces and then mm. there's... Yeah, there's a lot of mirrors in the film. Yeah, heaps. And so I think there's a lot of that is to do with reflection and performance. And then we've got the, she's bookended you know, at the beginning and the end of the film with these literal performances. But again, it seems to be almost part of this other life that we're never even shown where she is working with these musical groups around Santiago. But I don't know. I mean, at the end, being the, what's happening between those two musical performances, I think like, it means you can get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, li- I like the film. I thought it was... I thought it was interesting and I think I think it is worthwhile watching, um, particularly for Daniela Vega's performance and also for this depiction of Santiago. Mm, I think those yeah. two things make it the, a very interesting film yeah, for me. Yeah, not a city we get to see very often. Mm. Meanwhile, in this city, <laughs> we can tell you what's going to be coming up over the next two weeks through the Cultural Capital Film Diary. To coincide with the Melbourne Fashion Festival, Acme are having their fashion on film season, which sounds great, but it's actually just two films in one workshop. So you could actually do the entire season in, in a weekend. Manolo, The Boy Who Made Shoes for Lizards, runs from March 1st to the 14th. The Drawings of Yves Saint Laurent runs from March 7th and 15th. And on March 10th, there's a talk called Drawing Fashion. Manolo, Yves Saint Laurent and the Melbourne scene. Also at Acme is Loving Vincent, the world's first feature-length hand-painted animation and the probable loser of Best Animated Film Oscar to Coco. Telling the story. Oh, I thought that Loving Vincent. Sorry, am I allowed to interrupt? Oh, cool, no, by all means. I thought that Loving Vincent was like a shoe in. Mm. Because Coco's it's. the behemoth, though. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't realise. I just know that people have been talking about Loving yeah, Vincent for, and for good like reason. a year. It's phenomenal. Mm. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the film basically just tells the last few months of the life of Vincent van Gogh. Go, 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 whatever you want to pronounce it. Goo. Goo, thank you. <laughs> it's certainly <Thank> not. Goo. <laughs> I think literally. Anyway, uh, sorry, I do, I do, we digress. <laughs> we do. Um, it's certainly not like any other film you will have seen. 
The film Defiant Lives has the tagline The Rise and Triumph of the Disability Rights Movement. That runs until March 3rd. Also, finally, the film Chimpanzee is about the challenges faced by a small animal living in the forest of the Ivory Coast. It's a Disney film, so you can be guaranteed it's going to be family appropriate, and it runs from March 3rd to 31st. Over at the Astor, you can catch Alexander Payne's patchy downsizing paired with one of the greatest romantic comedies of all time, Harold and Maud. <laughs> oh, I love that film. And great to watch on the big screen, too. Don't leave that gap for you to fill. And that's <laughs> happening March 10th. If you're a Wes Anderson fan, you'll want to catch The Grand Budapest Hotel on a double bill with Fantastic Mr. Fox, and that's on March 15th. Finally, at Astor, everybody will find something to love about the Astor's March 5th program because it's back-to-back William Castle films. The Tingler, in which Vincent Price stars as, as a psychologist conducting experiments in fear, and Straightjacket, in which Joan Crawford plays a woman fresh out of the asylum trying to reconnect oh, with her daughter. I love that film. Yeah. Me too. Talk, just, um, <laughs> it's the sort of thing that big old cinemas and double bills were made for. Meanwhile, over at Cinematech... We have a very exciting season coming up. Six films directed by John Cassavetes. Um, he was a writer, director and actor um, and some of the films that we're screening star him, in fact. Of course, uh, his films are amazing. He's an incredibly influential, um, almost behemoth, ind- independent American filmmaker, um, if you can say that. He will be great to check out, so that's the next three weeks. Um, and also winding up today as we're recording is the Melbourne Women in Film Festival. Um, earlier, Anders conducted this interview with Sian Mitchell. Okay, so we're here with Sian Mitchell, the director of the Melbourne Women in Film Festival. How are you going? I'm great, thanks, Anders. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, thanks for joining us. We're at the start of the last day of things. How would you say the festival's going so far? I, I'm so pleased with it. Um, there, I feel like there's a, a real buzz around this idea of building a community um, of women of women filmmakers. So the energy's just been just been fantastic. It's been great. Yeah, cool. Could you talk about that um, community side of things? Um, sure. So I mean, I guess that's one of our biggest aims is to is to build um, a community of of not only women filmmakers and, and, and people working in industry to sort of raise that awareness around what women are doing um, with their craft, but also um, trying to then traverse into a larger audience so other people are seeing these works too. So I, th- I feel like we're starting to do that. It's only our second year, but it's given me a lot of, um, a lot of energy and a lot of hope that it's just going to get bigger from here. So, um, yeah, which is great. It's really important for us. Yeah, cool. The... Um, the interesting thing about film festivals for me is, and um, coming off the top of that, they're not just a collection of movies. There's all these other things going on. There's industry connections, these uh, community-based workshops, you've had panel discussions, all of that kind of stuff. Um, this year in particular, you've started a critics lab for emerging critics who identify as women. Um, could you discuss why? what brought that about? Well, I guess the core team, um, we're all academics, so <laughs> so, we're, so writing, the, cu- the culture of film is really important, writing about film for us is really important, and so much like in the film industry, in terms of, of screen culture and, and film criticism, there is equally and not enough women, I think, out there writing um, and, and criticising cinema, and so... Um, it was actually really Whitney Monaghan, this is her, her baby for the festival, um, and she just really wanted to um, encourage and sort of help uh, the next generation of women screen critics um, get some get some more experience, essentially. So um, and and try to publish their work in, in various places as, as much as we possibly can, just to get that out there. So so similar um, aims, just in terms of screen culture. 
as well as the industry, basically. Yeah, cool. And you managed to get uh, Rebecca Harkins-Cross and Mel Campbell on board as mentor critics. Um, could you talk about how important that relationship is between you know, more established critics and emerging critics? Well, I guess it's about showing, um, showing emerging critics that there are women out there doing what they want to do. Um, and I think it's important not only, I guess, to, to um, nurture the next generation of, the, of critics, but also to um, uh, raise awareness that, of the women who are already working and writing and being published um, and doing some wonderful work in, in that area. So to have Rebecca and Mel has been absolutely fantastic and, and it's great to have um, women who are, who, are being, who are so successful already doing, you know, doing all this sort of stuff. So um, I think that's, that's really important to have out there. Yeah, cool. Um, as you mentioned, you are all academics, all of you on the team? Uh, the, the, core, the core the four team. of us are, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's an interesting time in academia right now, particularly in the humanities and social sciences. Um, engagement is a big word. Would you say this fits into that idea of getting out of the ivory tower and into the community? Is that, I guess, what moment, yeah, what's the relationship between academia and film festivals at the moment? Uh, I know with with larger universities, I think there is a real um, a mission to engage with the industry a lot more. I, I, I actually um, lecture out of a private space, so um, a private institution. So we we are we need to engage with the industry because we, we do a lot of production courses and stuff like that. So that's just always been something that we've done. You're, you're at the SAE Institute. SAE, yeah. Yep. Yep. And so for, for larger public universities, yeah, there seems to be a real push for, for industry engagement and, and linkage and, and all of that sort of stuff at the moment. And so um, it helps get academics, I suppose, yeah, it, gets, it, get, it helps them sort of engage, I suppose, with something that um, they can get their perhaps teeth stuck into rather than, than sitting in an office and re reading and writing and watching. Um, it's a way of sort of going out there and engaging with people and, and, and sort of seeing a broader, um, well, the broader outcomes of what they're actually looking at in terms of audiences and things like that. So, um, and we also get to then benefit from their knowledge um, and their expertise to kind of break down a lot of these issues that we've been looking at in our panels in particular. So, um, yeah. And how did you guys all decide to start this festival? <laughs> well, again, it's it's because uh, I teach in a in production course. I do have um, young women, uh, not actually no, not I'm going to I'm not going to say young women, emerging filmmakers, yep. female filmmakers, um, who uh, uh, don't know that there are women in the Australian industry doing what they're doing. So I kind of wanted to um, showcase that to say, hey, you you actually do have some role models here, and in particular. You know, uh, granted, it's a very small proportion, but there are women working in, in areas like cinematography and editing and those sort of more creative technical roles um, that you don't really hear about very often. So uh, it was important to kind of create awareness, I think, for them. But then also I personally just wanted to be more involved myself as an academic in screen culture within um, within a sort of festival environment I thought was the most appropriate and, and to create something that was... Um, needed, I think, you know, having that sort of gap for, for women filmmakers, getting their work on a big screen. Um, so uh, I roped in a bunch of my friends from Monash University, so Kirsten, Whitney and Janice, um, who were very keen to help out and um, yeah, we kind of went from there. So it, it has now 
gotten much bigger than we expected, which has been great. So, um, yeah, that's how it happened. Yeah, awesome. And I just for I mean, I, I'd be very curious to know how do how does one go around starting a film festival? It sounds like it's a mammoth undertaking. Oh no, it's super easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it was a lot of a lot of initially for the first few months, me sitting in the state library, researching. Well, essentially, how to start a business. Yeah. Um, you know what legal's like. It's kind of all really dry stuff. But what legal structure should you have? And and then um, I was really lucky to um, through SAE to meet um, an amazing woman whose job is to kind of relationship build for community um, and for businesses. And so she just hooked me up with people, you know, lawyers and all that sort of stuff to give me advice. Um, and that's kind of how I suppose I got established. But but then, of course, it's about, okay, so who are, we, who are we and what are we trying to do when trying to create a mission and objectives that, that are really strong um, and that guide the programming and everything else that we do in the community to, to try and create that awareness and advocate for, um, for uh, the filmmakers. Um, you also have um, this sort of amazing board of... Um, quite fabulous, established uh, women who are working within the industry, chaired by um, Therese Davies of Monash University. Um, what kind of support do they offer you? Oh, so much. So I think there's, first of all, I think there's a real art to putting a board together because yeah. um, we've got Therese, who is amazing in terms of, of her background as an academic, um, so in terms of screen culture and also her research interests lie within women's filmmaking, so that's been um, amazing. And then we have Leanne Tongs, who is a film producer, and she's, you know, she's very well established and, um, you know, amazing networks. Um, Powerhouse oh, oh God, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. just amazing woman. Uh, and then, of course, looking at other areas. So we, um, Hari Morphis is a lawyer and governance expert. So having that's really important. And then we've got Emma Jenkin, who is a finance expert. So you know, we obviously, as a not-for-profit film festival, kind of need to make sure we can budget things and, and be able to put the festival on. So, so just looking at that sort of skill set, but all you know, just so high up in their field that. Um, just very inspiring women. Yeah. Um, okay, let's have a look at the program. Are there any highlights from this year that you particularly would like to talk to? Uh, well, I guess the opening was yes. amazing. Love Serenade. Um, could talk about that, absolutely. Um, and the music and motion session that we had last night was... Uh, I, I turned to the team, because we were, were all there, and I said, I don't mean to, like, blow our own trumpet here, but we did an amazing session just then. So, uh, could so, you talk about, yeah, what was that session? Okay, so it was um, musically inspired or, or, or films that kind of connect with music in some sort of really interesting way. So, um, the first film we did was a short film that actually was submitted to us um, in our open process, and it was a film called Wild Dances, and it's about um, these two young people, two 17-year-olds, you kind of find this connection through um, Roslana's Eurovision win from, I can't remember what year it was, but for the, the, when Ukraine won Eurovision. So they kind of sort of bond at this school dance over, <laughs> over this amazing song. And I was, you know, I was kind of dancing in my seat too, it was great. Um, and then that was followed up by The Was, which was the Soda Jerk Avalanche's kind of video mashup. Um, pastiche yes. of all this, yes, yes. you know, amazing kind of pop culture um, stuff. 
Um, and then after that was One Night the Moon, which is the Rachel Perkins film um, with Paul Kelly and Karen Fairfax. And just a beautiful, beautiful film. And it was amazing just to see it on the big screen. Um, I think it's from 2001 or something like that originally. Uh, and uh, just, you know, very, very emotional film. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And um, what has the response been like from audiences this year? Really positive, actually. They've, um, we've been receiving some feedback uh, around how organised we seem to be, <laughs> which I'm quite happy about. Yeah, a little bit. I don't feel organised. Um, no, really positive and, and really encouraging. So they, you know, we've been having people sort of say, we hope, you know, you're going to be around next year and we'll come back and... Um, you know what you're doing is a really great thing, and and the program is 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 wonderful. So, all really positive so far, which is great. Unless people are keeping things from me, um, all really positive. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, where to for this festival? I assume you you want to be back next year. Oh yeah, we yeah. want back every year. Yeah. We want to get yeah. bigger, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we want to find more work. We want to find more filmmakers. Um, as, as many filmmakers as we can kind of expose to, to the audience and build that audience, obviously, as well, and get bigger that way, um, the better. That's, that's our aim. And that was Anders talking to Sian Mitchell, the director of the Melbourne Women in Film Festival. This festival opened last week with the film Love Serenade. All I've done is love a little too much. Would you like to come in and use my dominoes for me? The thing was No longer my sister. And a little too hard. What if I were to ask you to take your clothes off right now? Maybe you and me. Right now? Sure. And for that, I've been tried and executed many times over. Help me. Sham, drudgery, and broken dreams. It's still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy. Made in Robinvale, Victoria, Shirley Barrett's Love Serenade is not a Melbourne film, but made the grade for our Cultural Capital Review because it screened as the opening night film at MWFF this week. And also because it was made in Victoria, but only just. Filmed just on this side of the state border in a town fictionalised as Sunray, Love Serenade is a romantic cultural comedy with an absurdist flavour about two sisters, Dimity and Vicky Ann, who become infatuated with a big town radio DJ who has professionally relocated to their modest township and moved in next door. As he spins a soundtrack of great 70s tunes, including the titular Love Serenade by Barry White, Ken Sherry, played by George Shetsov, unintentionally seduces Dimity, Miranda Otto, and Vicky Ann, Rebecca Frith, winning their sympathies while also admitting to being a bit of a dick. It's a film that doesn't really go where you might expect it, but takes you there willingly nonetheless because of the dedicated performances, consistently great tunes, and its undeniable Australianness. Andy, did you heed the sound of the serenade? <laughs> yeah, I think everybody did. I don't know. I don't really know anybody who's gone to see this film and gone, yeah, that wasn't really my bag, or it's a bit shit, or whatever. Everybody seems to love it, and it's so easy to see why. I mean, I've been looking forward to seeing this for like nearly fifteen years because I managed to miss it the first time around, and then it was extremely hard to find on any Blu-ray or DVD, and then it turned up on YouTube, and I was like, I don't want to see this on YouTube. Mm. This is an Australian classic, and then it turned up opening this festival, and I was like, brilliant. Finally. I know, on a thirty-five millimeter print from the NFSA too. What a dream! Mm, it was perfect, and then we even got to see. Shelley Barrett, her very self, and producer Jan Chapman. Yes, and, um, and editor, editor Denise Haratsis. Thank you. Um, yes, the three of uh, those amazing women talking about it um, at Acme. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, okay, so you, there is so much to really dive into because it's a, such a fascinating film. And so there seems to be this era in Australian cinema where we were just like fell in love with oddballs and they got mm. put in the Muriel's Wedding, you know, the Strictly Ballroom, all sorts of like weird Australians. And this is like one of the quiet achievers. So it got really great rave reviews overseas. It won the you know, camera door at Cannes. But basically it's one of the most Australian films I've ever seen. <laughs> so I don't quite know. I mean, for a lot of the time I was watching it going, this film's really slow. I'm amazed it even got picked up by Miramax. And like I would have thought they would have looked at this and gone, we can chop about 20 minutes out because everything's happening so slow. Yeah, totally. And obviously Barrett just loves these characters. Everybody's given the room that they want to say the awkward lines they want to say and everybody's delivering all the jokes and all the seriousness just with the same deadpan nature that it could have yes. easily failed. Um, and so there's these, also these moments of magical realism and magical realism really doesn't work unless you've got really solid realism happening around the magic and this does. Just because it depicts the town of Sunray so, I mean, you know, as Shirley Barrett said in the intro that they hardly changed it at all and it was just that was what the street was, the, the town. She used to go there because um, it was where her husband's family was from so she was familiar with that, you know, almost not lifeless but, you know, very plain main street, the vast um, distances between anywhere capture that, you know, really well. Mm. So it is, you know, this Australian country, you know, rural mundanity with an really like inexplicable um, strange subplot. Yeah, um, yeah. Which you, there's no way anyone's going to see that ending coming. I mean, you can sit there for a thousand <laughs> years and you're never going to call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so, I mean, w- what I love about this is that, you know, we do in Australia have a love of oddball characters. You know, we have the larrikin that he's one, he, and I say he for a reason, you know, he's one of our like central kind of mythological characters um, of the Australian identity. And in, you know, there were so many of these oddball men in, in cinema in the 70s. Um, and so to come out in the 90s and have, and I love that it, is kind of a 70s film even though it was mm, 1996. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was part of, you know, Brisbane, you know, this Ken Sherry character criticising that he he wanted to he wanted to slow down his life and he'd gotten off at the end of the world or something is some comment that he makes. Yeah, like, I'll stop um, the know. world, I, I want to get off. Oh, yeah. And I've gotten off here. You've gotten off here in Sunray. Yeah, it's like a, a small town slur. Um, <laughs> but it's a very funny and kind of, a, you know, a very adoring one even though it is yeah. it is a slur. But, you know, and I love that it kind of takes it back to the 70s and says, no, here we've got, you know, these women in this film um, and we're going to make a film where everyone's an oddball. You know, it's not, it's not like hot chicks... Um, yeah, it's being like in love with the totally goofy, you know, stalk dude. Yeah, it's not. Um, it's not Mystic Pizza. Yeah, yeah, that it's that it's everyone is is kooky. Yeah, mm. exactly. Um, this, I mean, I I sort of realized this afternoon. It's such a really interesting portrait of many things, but of like dagginess. And there was like this amazing <laughs> moment which I just laughed and laughed at, um, where. Um, uh, Moran Dimity is is she taking off like tracksuit pants? Is she wearing tracksuit pants? Yep. Uh, so she's taking off her trackies uh, just before she's about to have sex um, with Ken Sherry for the first time. For the fir- for the first time, yeah, to lose her virginity, in fact. <laughs> um, and she's taking off her tracksuit pants, and like you hear this jangle of the coins in the pocket of her trackies as she as they like fall to the floor, and it was like this amazing little uh, oral detail, and it was just like so. Daggy. So yeah. <laughs> I just thought if you're if you're listening to this from outside Australia, you have no idea what daggy means, then you know, taking off your sweatpants before you having have sex while listening to coins noisily jingle in your pockets, that is daggy. <laughs> so um 
all of that. But you have coins in your tracksuit pants that you would like go to the shops in tracksuit pants anyway is like incredibly daggy. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. You know. uh, Yeah. Actually, I I I should correct that. That's the second time. The first time is the least attractive strip you've (laughs) ever seen in cinema history. It's the most awkward (laughs) encounter. It's so awkward. The, it's just jaw dropping. This film is very it's awkward. It's phenomenally awkward, yeah. So the second, <laughs> second time she went track it It's out. so awkward, but so affectionate. You yeah, know, yeah, for exactly. Its characters. It's sort of lovingly. Yeah. Awkward. And even though, as I said, you know, Ken Sherry is is a total dick, we we appreciate him and we're, you know. Yeah, exactly. Which know, is really interesting. In this weird way, we can kind of understand. <laughs> oh, oh, maybe, you know, maybe it's not about understanding, Ish. but, you know, <laughs> really? it's like. <laughs> I think he's. I know, he was such this weird dead fan. They were. He was just so dead fan. Well, yeah, and yeah, his voice. I, I, <laughs> I've never quite seen a character like Ken Sherry yeah, on screen, it's or any, or actually Vicky and Dim- Vicky Ann and Dimity. Mm, yeah, but, it doesn't uh, really remind me of anyone. But it, but that sort of like seduction technique of like. I'm amazing and you're going to realise it <laughs> like in the next few minutes and I don't even have to change my expression to because I know how much power that I hold. It's almost like, you know, somebody from another era in a way where this must have worked doing drive time show in Brisbane where you could have turned up in a bar and just sat there. I, and I people love that he's a... Yeah, or maybe 30 years ago it worked. So now he's like a faded rock star where he used to get the chance I mean, that way, but now he doesn't and he's mm. come to this small town. And maybe for this reason. It's so bizarre. Yeah. Like he, yeah, he's this commercial radio guy from Brisbane who's just shown up to like run the very dusty commercial station in town and like these two women just like <laughs> go crazy over it. Like it, they treat him as like the celebrity yeah. guy. Well, everyone does, not just the women, the China, the owner of the Chinese shop, uh, takeaway shop. Like everyone is like kind of weirdly obsessed with Ken Sherry. Well, this is the weird thing. So everybody in this film consists of about five people and there's so mm. much that's omitted that we never understand why these young women don't have a, another, the rest of a family. We don't understand what, who else, does anybody even work in that radio station besides him? Is it just off air the rest of the time? Why does the radio station get piped through the streets? <laughs> why is there like nobody ever come into the, restaurant why is there's only one shot where you get to see anybody who isn't one of these five people yeah one scene of i mean it's kind of dreamlike in that way yeah Yeah, yeah, like the the scene very or not a scene really but when uh, miranda otto is on her bicycle and she's you know we later find out that she's on her bike directly outside of the station because that's where the loudspeaker is that's projecting um the the station but at that point it could be anywhere in the town and so she's just listening to the radio but that particular scene and the way i can't remember what song it is but the song that's playing at that time just the way the camera kind of very slowly just like beams down um onto Mm -hmm. the the dimity character is incredible it's just so kind of moving Mm, um and so lyrical in this really weird resisting way <laughs> yeah it's I, sorry oh no i was just going to say yeah i agree it's it's it does have this dreamlike quality to me it felt um as if muriel's wedding were directed by david lynch it was just <laughs> like it was quirky dreamlike and then you've got this sort of dark undercurrent which sort of comes to the fore more towards the end of the film um but yeah no i loved it yeah, because it really shouldn't have worked. Like, I can't, I'm still trying to get my head around yeah. how. I mean, she's. Barrett is obviously <laughs> such a fantastic writer and director that she can make this town seem instantly, you know, accessible and understandable and you can empathise with it. And you, but on the sparest bits of information and the fewest characters. I just wanted to say something. I just wanted to say that I really like that thing that you read on the radio today. Sing. 
I suppose it is a thing of sorts. With all its sham, drudgery and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy. Well, that's very kind of you to say so. Would you join me? This is what what often what interesting filmmakers do is what 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 does that say about the exploration of women characters on screen female desire mm. um how female desire is treated and received by either its you know its recipients or its victims yeah <laughs> from yeah. you know whichever perspective we're we're looking at it from but you know that's kind of really interesting as well yeah definitely um, and that, that that's what's being brought into australia at this time did you see it when it came out no, I didn't. Okay. So I'm, I'm intrigued as to how things might have changed or whether Ken Cherry w- would have been written differently now because he, there is a, there's a point where it's like hilarious and deadpan and then it crosses over to total lecherous, almost pedophilia. Yeah, it at gets some point. very Oh, creepy. yeah, definitely, definitely. And maybe in 96 that would have landed differently with audiences but now in, in 2018 it's like, oh, man, no, it's just a bit too far. It, it's a bit too far but, I mean, Australian film history and – is full of that, you know, that uncouth Australian blokeness, you know. I mean, you just go straight to Bruce Spence, like what what a fucking weird face. But like, you know, also kind of quite magnetic mm. Um, mm. and unattractive and yet like irresistible in some ways. Yeah. Although I, now I'm like shuddering that I just described Ken Cherry's irresistible. Well, I, there was something <laughs> about Ken Cherry. I mean, yeah. I agree. <laughs> it's this creepy old guy with a very leather, leathery face who's just – was shown up. It doesn't really. He's not a man of many words, um, and the words that he does sprout are, you know, very self-involved. Um, but I mean, often, but like, you know, know, women are, are drawn to that, or at least in film and television, women are drawn to the laconic man mm. because he's mysterious and because you know he doesn't speak, and so women can fill in the gaps. Perhaps I, I love that moment where Dippet is like, "Oh, uh, do you think I'm odd?" And he's like, "Oh no." No more than any other woman. <laughs> and she's like, uh, but you're not odd. And he's like, trust me, Dimity, I'm odd. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like, my God, what? Yeah. <laughs> the, the delivery, the delivery was just stunning. I, It's hilarious. <laughs> it is, the dead, yeah. That dead fan delivery. I mean, yeah. yeah George Shepstone is like, you can, te- you can tell the theatre background. Yeah. Like <laughs> and the thing about this, I mean, I adore Australian cinema. I love it so much there's so many gems in our history um and so much richness and so much of that i will just say comes from women filmmakers um it's it's really brilliant but i and i i do think that this film has a lot of wittiness in the characters in the dialogue in the cinematography i think it's brilliant cinematography by mandy walker but just the editing everything i think works really well as a whole film but it's like I know I love it because I'm Australian <laughs> and I just think, I mean, this one, the camera door and where where else is its appeal if not for being just in love with your own country's weirdness? Yeah. And surely it's there but I, I don't know. I, and maybe I'm being unfair. I don't know. <laughs> where Where is it? You yeah, know? interesting. I don't know. That's but impossible it, it, to... But maybe I'm just overwhelmed with the love you know, for it Australia. Would be that's, weird. That's... I imagine that if you were American, mm. um, it would be weird, like, <laughs> this music that you so associate with a particular moment in your country's <laughs> cultural history being applied to a very tiny town 
in a country on the other side of the world. That would be a bizarre thing to totally, and that it's aligned with these like brilliant broad shots of the landscape. So often, you know, the openings of these tunes exactly um, are given such grandiosity, and yet they're so small as well. Exactly. I mean, actually, and I did have this thought because I remember there was one. I can't remember what song was, but I in my mind I was like, oh, this would have been beamed through you know disco halls in LA. I was picturing a disco hall in LA, but and then suddenly on screen you've got this wide tracking shot of like this abandoned like concrete uh chair and table and an rsl park and like <laughs> very dusty street and dimity riding her bike it was just like this bizarre contrast in um implications which was really interesting yeah it still feels really really new that kind of that mix of like very. pelicans and the murray and barry white yeah, and, um, and Galaz, let's not forget Galaz. No, let's not. No, but also I was thinking, well, the town, like the locals have heard all these songs thousands of times, like because they don't have any any other records. Yeah, the, they have so like even five records got, on Even though they've got Ken Sherry doing his thing, it's still like, oh, yeah, more Barry White. Oh. I know, I Ken love Sherry. when he comes and obviously, you know, it's 2018 and so we are we have a different vernacular, but he comes and he set, announces on the radio like Brisbane isn't some great futuristic town, Not doesn't have any like brilliant advancements, but at least they'd heard of compact discs. <laughs> <laughs> just the way he says it is so scathing, yeah. but like, again, just not cruel. Mm. Um, anyway. But, but it's interesting, know. it does have a time assist. For a while I thought, oh, hang on, this is like set in the early 80s and then I was like, no, 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 mm. it's, it is meant to be present day, 96. Yeah. Um, worth also pointing out that um, Mandy Walker, the cinematographer, is uh, working with Nikki Caro on the live action version of Mulan, which is due out later this year. Oh, amazing. Oh. And, she's just, and she finished Hidden Figures a little while ago, as we were yeah, told that's right. by Shelley Barrett at the opening. And also, listeners might be keen to know that a huge swathe of the film's budget went to so they song rights. So they were saying $400,000. $400,000, yeah. I know, I couldn't quite believe it. Um, but they must, I mean, that was, was in the budget, obviously, yeah, from the very beginning, because all of the songs were in the script. Yeah, they yeah, were yeah. saying, and so Jan Chapman just had to do it, you know. And she's a, a um, powerhouse producer mm. in Australia, so. yeah. And that does give you some idea of just the level of, I think, mastering and creative conception here is that the soundtrack is was written into the script, yeah. So mm. that tells yeah. you everything about how confidently made the film is, yeah, yeah, and how few like. committees had to deal with it between yeah. it being written and being put on the screen. Speaking of music. Um, Andy, do you want to give our listeners a little uh, um, fact about Shirley Barrett? Yeah, I will. Well, um, the song that you're going to hear a few seconds of soon, because we don't want to like push any copyright issues, and I will throw a link in the show notes, <laughs> is a song by the band The Fruit Pastels called I Don't Ever Want to See You Again. And this is a recording from 1982 Countdown, in which uh, Shirley, who's you know a tall woman, a commanding presence, um, looks absolutely phenomenal on stage um, in this incredible yellow outfit. And I highly recommend people clicking on the link in the show notes to see the entire experience that we is the fruit pastels live. Yeah, we just watched it to um, get pumped up for this episode and can <laughs> highly recommend. <laughs> pretty cool. It's a blinder. Yes. <laughs> 
thank you all very much for listening through to the end of episode 43 of Cultural Capital. You can find us on Facebook or at the Cultural, Cap- Cultural Capital Podcast or you can find us on Twitter at the Cult Cap Pod. I'm at Andy Ricky again. I've changed back after hey! pressure from um, co-hosts. <laughs> I'm just me whinging. Just hello oh. whinging, but it's so, it's so powerful whinging. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. And you can find me at Anders Furs. And you can get an extra thanks from us if you give us a positive review on iTunes, so why not do that? Bye. 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 Bye.